0: Welcome to our Behind the Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. It's hedging the FX risk. is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gou- The reason that people are talking about India is massive
1: digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
0: This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Longer and the Future For Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the Office of Investment Products and the views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree its Affiliates. We also have Wes Gray of Alpha Architect joining in the studio as co-host again. Wes, thanks for being here. Appreciate you having me. We're going to have a great show. We've got two guests live in the studio. We're going to talk a lot about fintech technology, analytics, how you look at portfolios, and really some some interesting guests who have joined us here in award Studio. We are doing a taping this week, uh, as we're not going to be live tomorrow, and we have... Professor Siegel, for just a quick commentary as of Thursday afternoon, Professor, interesting week in the markets. Um, we've got some <laughs> trade war rhetoric. We've got, you know, Trump talking. The the currencies are, are moving a lot. We've got the ECB commenting today. Any thoughts on on what's been happening? Yeah,
1: and you got it there. I mean, the currency moves are.
0: Uh, <laughs> it's very
1: unusual for Treasury Secretary to make a comment. We like a weaker dollar, <laughs> and that really did royal. A market, and um, you know, uh, we we just had the word Trump said, "No, I like a strong dollar," and so now now the dollar pushed back just in uh, the last uh, uh, few minutes uh, uh, there, and and that does move market. I mean, the perception is that a weaker dollar um, is is, and it is the correct perception, is better for corporate profits, uh, not only does it make the U.S. Uh, Manufactured goods more competitive, but also means whatever euros are brought back from sales in Europe say are worth more in dollars uh, for uh, for the earnings. So you do definitely see, you know, depending on how global firm is moving with the dollar. I'm a little bit surprised, though. We'll, we'll see whether the weakness uh, does continue. I've I have made the claim that I. I myself don't see the dollar as being extremely weak this year. I think it's pretty fairly priced. I don't have strong views right now on whether the dollar is going up or down. I do know that earnings are still coming in. I mean, we we haven't had, uh, you know, we're not up to half yet, but uh, we, we're getting very good earnings here for the fourth quarter. We're getting a lot of charges, of course, as a result of the new tax law. Um, uh, but uh, the operating earnings are coming in good. The momentum players are still, you know, in in these uh, stocks. And um, uh, at this point, we don't have any meaningful rotation uh, going on.
0: Yeah. Uh, we've got the GDP report tomorrow. It's, I know it's going to be some... You know, we're commenting ahead of the report. Any yeah. sense of what you're looking for as yeah. people reflect on what the numbers are they've seen after?
1: Yeah, we're going to get that. So it's, it's interesting, um, and, and that is going to be important. And by the time this is broadcast, people will know. It comes out at 830 in the morning. Um, I think it will have political impact if it's 3% or higher, because that will be three consecutive quarters, and, and Trump – can definitely make a big deal about that because uh, there was a lot of disbelief that he could turn in a 3% growth economy. Uh, that would be the third consecutive quarter. Now, the, the the forecasters that I follow, they're they're pretty close to three. Although the one that that I followed the closest says two point eight, so may not just uh make it, and also it's only calling for about two and a half this first quarter, so uh you know we have to see whether if if we do get to three percent uh most of of the forecasters i'm 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 looking at are not saying that they think it's sustainable throughout all of uh, 2018, but uh, I think there's going to be some uh, political impact. Uh, I know that Trump administration is really hoping we can uh, climb over 3% uh, for the uh, fourth quarter.
0: Very good. And maybe one final question. Have you, are you making anything of the breakout in commodity indexes that you're seeing? I, I've, I've noticed they've been really rallying, and, yeah. and certainly the, the, even the shape of the curve has changed. You've seen, you know, before you're paying these big contango, and you had to pay a big premium, and now you're getting some backwardation in some of them, um, like oil, which is, which is the, the big one. Right, but a, any right. Any well, I think I think a lot of it is is
1: what's going on with the dollar. Don't forget, commodities are internationally traded. If the dollar is weak, you're going to see dollar prices uh, generally rise. Um, yeah. uh, and and I mean, we, the big surge in oil. I mean, you know, uh, with uh, uh, WTI approaching sixty six, Brent over seventy. I mean, who thought these uh, were possible? And obviously, anything connected with oil is is showing a lot of bids year after you know, they lagged a lot beforehand. But if you know, obviously, weak dollar will be uh, good for commodities. A, oh, a strong economy, we've talked about the fact, you know, pushing if we push below four percent, which we might in the first couple months of uh, this year, uh, you know, that's going to tighten the labor market, uh, maybe give us a little bit of a uh, pressure there. So I think people are taking a second look at commodities. Um, and, and and rightful so, given how strong the global economy is.
0: Very good. Thanks for, for joining us for some commentary today. Okay, thank you. So we're going to turn the conversation to our guests in the studio. We have uh, a packed studio here. We have Kendrick Wakeman, the CEO of Finn Mason. Uh, Kendrick, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks. Pleasure to be here.
0: We have David Yates, who's the chief information officer, one of my colleagues at Wisdom Tree. David, thanks for coming from New York. Thanks for having me. We're going we're gonna to talk a little about, the. both of these gentlemen have a big experience in building tools, building analytics um, to help you understand your portfolio. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how each of them is incorporating th- their work to help, to help help advisors, institutions. Kendrick, maybe we could start with you, your background. Uh, maybe tell a little bit about what you were doing before starting
2: FinMason. Sure. Uh, essentially, I have a 30-year career as an uh, investor on Wall Street, um, most recently at, uh, I was a uh, portfolio manager and uh, analyst at uh, Lazard Asset Management on the uh, uh, hedge fund side. I also ran a department, uh, or was co of department at uh, Wachovia Securities, and uh, before that I was the director of research at uh, what was, at the time, the, the world's largest equity-linked research boutique.
0: So, you uh, retired in, in
2: 2012, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And then,
0: now you're at CEO of FinMason, so what made you go out of retirement and, and come back
2: into to FinTech? There, there are many days, quite frankly, ask myself the same thing. Uh, so during my career, uh, I was always a kind of a quantamental investor, so trying to marry um, fundamentals and quantitative analysis. And when I first started back in the uh, 80s, uh, if you wanted a quantitative investment system, you had to build it yourself. Uh, so I just started building systems to support my own uh, investment activity uh, and I just never stopped. Uh, so I, you know, at, at other firms, at Wachovia and, and uh, Lazard, was either integrating or building systems uh, to support investment activity, risk management, um, trade ident- identification, evaluation. Uh, you know what? But at some of these firms, um, I never really got to build the system I wanted to, uh, largely because uh, there are some technology limitations at, at uh, established firms where the technology platform was maybe built in the 80s or 90s, with, with older technology and, and older data structures. And, uh, technology has advanced so much since then, uh, you know, even in the last 10 years. So, uh, in my idle time, I started thinking about what would it be like if we took a lot of resources, um, a lot of expertise and a brand new tech, uh, tech stack and used all the newest technologies to build kind of the perfect analytics system. And, um, it was supposed to be a thought leadership project, but uh, before I knew it, uh, you know, we had office space and uh, employees. And my life was uh, spinning out of control again.
0: Very good. So maybe describe to people what Finn Mason is doing. What are the analytics you're trying to provide to people?
2: Well, our strategy is to try and be, be kind of like the intel inside for analytics um, globally. So uh, we wanted to be able to provide investors with any analytic they wanted very quickly uh, at a very low cost and uh, very flexibly as well. So think of us as um, the calculation layer. Uh, we don't do the front end. Um, we don't have the proprietary data, the portfolio data. Uh, all we do is that calculation layer, the piece in the middle. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, this is the piece that people don't want to build themselves. Uh, the front end is very, very important these days. Uh, basically, that's your brand. And uh, you know, basically, consumers have decided that they want uh, experiences similar to other consumer verticals. So that means a lot of rapid prototyping, means a lot of uh, iterating ideas and functionality, and if you're stuck building out analytics as you do that, it really, really holds you back.
3: Uh, Kendrick, this is Wes, had a quick question. I was uh, doing a little bit of research on you beforehand, checking out your guys' website, which is really cool, and I was just looking at the profile of some of your teammates, and it's a lot of eccentric, different backgrounds. Everyone looks like they got you know, IQ of 200. And uh, two questions I had is, I noticed a few interesting facts on your website. I was just curious to get the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is you mentioned that someone on your team has the world record distance for frisbee throwing. Uh, what is that distance and who's the person that did that? Uh, well, I I don't know what the distance is.
2: Um, and uh, it's actually uh, Dr. Blake, who's our head of global macroeconomics, uh, Dr. Robert Blake. Gotcha. So he is an economist. So he would probably just give me a range anyway
3: gotcha and then kendrick i, I gotta ask a second follow-up here someone also went off an olympic olympic ski jump on a dinner tray was that you that was me yes okay
2: good that's we have uh at Dartmouth college there's a uh, olympic ski jump and uh there was an evening where we decided we'd go off on a dinner tray yes
3: very nice
2: that's a unique experience we didn't have skis. I should point out.
3: Okay. Now, now, do these sort of eccentric activities kind of improve the the quantitative capabilities around the shop, or is that just how you recruit talent these days? Or what, what's the what's the story with the the quirky backgrounds you guys have?
2: Well, we like to have a really kind of a fun culture at our firm, which is you know basically we're all really a bunch of geeks. I mean, pure analytics geeks. I mean, I can't even stress that enough. Um, and sometimes. You know, putting in these levity items, uh, you know, help with morale around the office. It's actually been a pretty good recruiting tool. People always mention it when they come in to interview. Uh,
3: and honestly, I don't know why we did it other than
2: that, except... Um,
3: and you we- picked up on it, Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm sure it's a lot different than what it was like at Lazard. Uh, <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> and
2: I have to say that all kind of came about because somebody found a widget in WordPress that would rotate text across a, a thing. So that's the origin of that. Sure.
0: so you mentioned you're not building front end you're building analytics, so maybe talk about the types of analytics that you think you know what can investors who, who partner with you come to get, you know get the insights and, and what are the key insights you're trying to provide people
2: that might differentiate you from somebody else Well, essentially, we try and give people whatever analytics they want. if somebody comes in and says uh, part of our uh, our value proposition is flexibility if somebody comes in and says, "I want to look at a particular factor this way or set of factors. I want a new set of factors. Um, if I don't think it's the right thing or a team doesn't think it's the right thing, we'll try and spend a little time talking a lot of it. But quite honestly, at the end of the day, that's what you're getting. Um, we have architected our system to add analytics very quickly. If you come to us with a new analytic, we can probably have it in full production within 48 hours, including testing. Uh, and that's just the, the pleasure of having a modern tech stack and architecting it for that specific spec. We we knew we'd have to add a lot of analytics. We have 700 now. We'll probably have 1,400 in the next uh, three months or so. Um, And look, you go around to 10 different um, risk managers or portfolio managers or investors, whoever, and say, what is the one way to look at the market? You're probably going to get 26 to 50 answers. Everybody wants a different analytic, depending on what the mood is and what they're trying to do, who they are, what they're investing in. And we knew we had to be flexible to provide all that.
0: Now, one of the things, you know, we're getting sort of late stage in this market cycle. A lot of people say markets are expensive. How do you look at that question? Like, what are the key insights that sort of Fin Mason's trying to provide to people in sort of looking at where the markets are today and what implications that has for people?
2: Um, well, we we don't time the markets. I mean, in my 30-year career, I never timed the market. Well, that's not true. For the first two years, I did. But for the, the next 28, I did not. So it's like one of those... You learn the lesson. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's just like they say, if you try and carry a cat home by its tail, you learn a lesson you can't learn in any other way. So um, I would say that kind of a hotter, one of our hotter sellers in this uh, higher valuation environment is um, is uh, stress tests, uh, you know, specifically something around a uh, crash 2008. Um, we actually did a, and I think it's an important stat for people to know. I, I think investors should know that, not to scare them out of the market, um, but to frame the conversation correctly. And uh, if you know what that number is, or have an idea about what that number is, when it actually happens, is it, it, it will at some time, I'm sure. Um, I think you're more mentally prepared for that. It's not going to be a shock factor. Um, also, if you've had a conversation with your advisor about it, you know you're, you're going to be less inclined to say, "Oh, my, I got tricked into the wrong portfolio," or, or "The market's broken," or "You know, it's all going to zero or whatever it happens to be. Um, so, uh, we did a, we did actually a survey uh, last year. Um, about 500 uh, investors with advisors, uh, with advisors, and only about a quarter of them were told how much they could expect to lose if the market were to crash again. And um, out of those people, uh, you know, 62% were actually underestimating how much they could lose based on their asset allocation, not their exact portfolio, just their asset allocation. So I, I think that's kind of a problem.
0: So only 10 to 12 people, maybe 62 times 25, so you're only at like 13%, eight. 15% of how many people are actually expecting to, to, to properly calibrate yep. what their loss would be. Wes, you do a good job of managing people's expectations on... Um...
3: Yeah, I mean, our we just always, you know, set expectations as low as humanly possible and just tell them how terrible and horrific everything is <laughs> in a very non-quantitative you know quantitative way, which is ironic because all we do is quant stuff. But just to your point about behavioral you want to condition people for pain so when they get the pain they don't overreact to it um but so, question i had just a follow-up on that maybe just to dig in so when you mentioned that you're you're looking at portfolio expectations in a drawdown episode like how how are you getting those estimates are you bootstrapping from empirical data you model it out or i mean that that in itself is its own science i'm i'm curious to know how you go about that
2: yeah so You know, maybe a a traditional method would be, um, okay, let's take a look what this uh, client owns or what I own, and then let's take a look at what happened back in 2008 with those specific instruments, um, and that would give you a result. But there's two problems with that. One is that what you own now may not have existed back in 2008, um, or what you own now existed back in 2008 but was fundamentally different. Either even a single uh, security could have had mergers or uh, delevered or whatever it happens to be. Um, and of course, if it's a uh, if it's a fund, it, you know, it, it probably could have changed uh, in constituency. Um, th- an alternative to that is uh, there are two alternatives to that. One is uh, you can substitute uh, something from a peer group for something that doesn't have an adequate history. Uh, the second thing is you could uh, use a factor based approach where you um, break your portfolio down into factors and then see how those factors performed during that event. And uh, and we kind of like that a little bit better because it gives more insight into what is driving that performance estimate than uh, than simply a, a historical.
3: One more fall on that, just because we do a lot of this as well in-house, in probably not as fast as you guys do it, but it, a lot of that depends really on like your time series. So if you look at factors from, say, 60 on, you know, for example, value, it looks amazing and you know but if you add in like the 27 or the 29 crash and that whole episode all of a sudden value looks marginal and, and so just the time series that you include in that database for stress testing has a huge effect on your expectations like h- how do you guys go about you know identifying how much is too much data what's relevant all these sort of components it's um it's it's a it's an excellent question because
2: there is a balance there so what we do is we'll take instruments and we'll regress their uh, their earnings or their um, return stream against the factors that we're looking at. And if we go back too far in the data, then we may be sampling periods that aren't really relevant to what that investment is now. Um, but if we don't go far back far enough, we may not have something that's statistically significant. So it is a it's, that's part's a little bit of a, a, an art rather than a science. And our approach, quite frankly, is we have one set of numbers. We actually go back 10 years now on most of our stuff. But if a client comes in and says, no, 10 years is not good. I want five or I want you know seven and a half. Again, that's where the flexibility of our system comes in. We can, uh, we can put that into production for them.
0: Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We have Kendrick Wakeman, CEO of Finn Mason in the studio. David Yates, who we haven't turned to. David, you're going to be coming up here. Second, Chief Information Officer at Wisdom Tree. We've got Wes Gray of Alpha Architects. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, and Kendrick, you're, you're talking about these different factors. We've talked a lot about, you just talked about the financial crisis and stress testing, what your portfolio could be down. Uh, sort of the stress testing is one of the big elements of what you do. We talked a little bit um, before, maybe on bonds. Do you, you look at bond returns in bond series, how do you think people should be framing the bond conversation? Or how do you think the types of conversations you should have with people about bonds would make
2: sense for, for a client and you know how the advisor should be talking to clients about that? Um, well, you know, bond math gets very complicated very quickly. So we don't advocate that uh, when you're talking with a retail client. But there are some things that you can uh, walk through, like, how would the portfolio look with respect to the bonds if we had another Fed hike scenario like 1994, for example. So, you know, or, or the uh, temper tantrum, or, you, know, the, or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, giving people scenarios that they can intuit with and giving them actual return numbers instead of, uh, you know, telling them, like, the duration of a, a bond portfolio is not particularly descriptive to a uh, retail investor. But if you say, look, if interest rates go up a percent, um, we think that this, this bond fund will come down, you know. or something to that effect. That they can get their head around. And then put that 1% into uh, a historical framework that they can relate to. And now you're starting to explain bond math to somebody who might not have any financial training whatsoever.
0: And so who are the types of people who are using FinMason? Who are you most often working with?
2: Well, uh, we originally envisioned our primary market as being the uh, wealth management space. Um, And it kind of grew out of a, a desire to get people... You know, engaged with their portfolio, get to you know uh, get to reach out for advice in a way that they can be confident about. Um, you know, get away from trust based selling and, and more towards validation based selling and, and trust building. Uh, and that was really our first target market, um, and and we've we've had a lot of penetration there and a lot of success there. But we've kind of been surprised by other markets that have also come in the institutional asset management market. Uh, we're seeing a lot of demand there, specifically for uh, performance attribution. Uh, I think they're all under pressure right now, as a lot of people in the investment vertical are, to uh, save money uh, because of uh, fee pressure. So they're starting to look at some of their more expensive systems and say, is there a better way we can do this? Maybe we can do it in-house that's more flexible, more the way we look at things, and and save us a little bit of money on the side. Uh, We've got some interest from the defined uh, benefit pension market, which I never thought uh, we would get as well, being that they're so sophisticated and have so many systems. But Again, I think it comes down to flexibility. Um, you know, Not every system uh, works exactly the way that an institutional investor wants to look at their portfolio, and a lot of the times, these, these systems are very inflexible.
0: Uh, we're going to take a very short break, um, we're going to come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Kendrick Wakeman, CEO of Finn Mason, David Yates, CIO, we're going to bring you, David, I promise, right after the break of Wisdom Tree, you got Wes Gray, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, uh, and we'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. This is Behind the Markets and siriusxm 111. In the studio here, we have David Yates, Chief Information Officer at WisdomTree, head of our technology initiative. We have Kendrick uh, Wakeman of Finn Mason, West Gray of Alpha Architect. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, David, in the first part of the program we had an extended conversation with, with Kendrick on what FinnMason does, some of the analytics he's providing. He is doing a lot of the back-end portfolio analytics. You are starting to become a user of of his debt. So I want to talk to you about how you started to be the front-end and try to think about incorporating some of his, his analytics. But maybe just so our, our listeners have some of your background, sort of talk about how you got into technology, some of your background, maybe where you started your career. You were just telling me about a very interesting story about how you worked at the Bank of England and, and developed some of their technology.
4: Uh, so I got into tech fairly late after college, but I joined the Bank of England, which is obviously the central bank in the U.K., uh, building technology stuff for economists uh, and surprisingly even back then when we were doing it they didn't have great analytic models automated uh, to help their economists figure out where inflation expectations and interest rate expectations were in the market. Uh, so one of the projects I worked on fairly early on was building a yield curve uh, analytics tool that would help their economists present to the MPC as it's called, the Monetary Policy Committee in the UK, who set interest rates where the market thinks interest rates and inflation expectations will be. Um, And so that was kind of my first foray into doing analytics work uh, with a technology bent to provide visualization and analytics uh, dynamically and quickly versus doing in spreadsheets, which I think how they were doing it before. Um, From there, I've spent a couple of years working actually in India. I got outsourced in the reverse way to build some capital markets technology uh, trading platforms for places like the London Stock Exchange. Uh, and then I came over to the US on a whim, really, uh, to do business school, not at Wharton, but MIT, uh, which is obviously a far better school. Um, <laughs> Decent backup school to us. Yeah, deac- it's, a yeah it's a backup school. It's a backup school you guys. Uh, and just never left. Uh, after MIT, obviously, I was very interested in technology. There's a good uh, finance program there as well. But I joined McKinsey doing uh, technology consulting. Primarily for insurance companies and asset managers, where we focused a lot on cost savings, as you can imagine, but also on things like advanced analytics, which was just then becoming a real thing that these big companies were starting to think about. Um, and the opportunity came to uh, uh, later on to join WisdomTree, and WisdomTree was really starting to think seriously about digital technology uh, and analytics and it was a great opportunity to help build some of that capability
0: now, now you probably won't tell us who you were consulting at mckinsey i know they make you sign a secret uh non-disclosure agreement uh, so you won't tell us who exactly you worked with but but what do you say is the state of technology at these big asset managers as you look out as look at inside now being as part of an asset manager how would you say the major asset managers that you consulted with
4: so yeah without offending anyone so In these big asset managers, the ones that have been around for a long time, they obviously have a a, a lot of legacy systems to deal with. So with that comes obviously a fair bit of stability because they're built to last. These were good systems. Nothing really ever breaks, but it makes it hard to be flexible uh, and start to build the real consumer-facing stuff that consumers expect that has a great uh, user interface, user experience, and is really flexible as far as the analytics goes and the outputs. Um, so combining all those legacy systems together to give you an output that's good for the consumer, the retail investor, uh, can be quite challenging. So some of those asset managers have struggled with that. Some of them have invested for the future and are starting to do a really nice job with how they manage data. Um, but it's it's not easy. Uh, and I think what, one of the things we found at WisdomTree was we didn't have too much of a legacy infrastructure uh, around data such that when we came in and started really focusing on it, we could build something a bit like how Kendricks uh, described FinMason that is for, a bit more forward thinking. It doesn't have too much baggage. Uh, we're able to move pretty quickly to design stuff that we think is useful to our clients. So maybe
0: highlight one of the sort of flagships. What are you? What, what are you? How are you using FinMason data to provide analytics to people?
4: Yeah, so we partnered with FinMason Mason last year uh, on a tool that we now have on our website called the Digital Portfolio Developer. And really the concept of that was to um, help our clients uh, figure out how to use, in our case, WisdomTree products in, a more, in an effective way inside a portfolio. But really what it ended up becoming was a, a portfolio analytics tool that you could use for for any reason, um, for, or didn't, didn't need to include WisdomTree product, but we did it in such a way that had a great user interface, a great user experience. Uh, and using FinMason's analytics in real time, uh, in a couple of hundred milliseconds, we're able to get the, uh, the, the user a really stunning result from a user experience perspective, but really quality analytics, which include, include things like the stress testing we were alluding to, uh, that they can't find very many places elsewhere. So that's something that we continue to build on and has been a real uh, helpful. Uh, tool to for our clients to use to to understand how Wisdom Tree can fit into a portfolio, but also just get some really great analytics on, on their portfolios. Uh,
3: uh, just a quick follow on. Uh, I know you gentlemen have been in the space for you know decades now and, and know kind of the cutting edge frontiers of fintech. Uh, one of the things I've always wondered is you have robo's; they're disrupting things. ETFs are arguably a technology that's disrupting the industry. W- where do you guys see? The next disruption, or, or what's the next thing out there that asset managers should be aware of? If you have any thoughts on that, well, the present
2: is pretty exciting. So, um, oh, I agree. I, yeah, I mean, I honestly, I think that from from what we're seeing out there, if they haven't done so already, pretty much every advisor in the United States and probably abroad is going to either upgrade their existing systems or buy a new system in in really the next eighteen months. I mean, there are a lot of uh, tailwinds there. The, the, the tolerance around the old user experience and uh, you know is just has just vanished uh, it's vanished because the millennials are now coming up into the ranks um, but even the baby boomers they don't you know they don't want something that looks like it's from the eighties you know so um, I think that's kind of the most exciting thing but I, I think what is going to the the transformation we're, we're still in the middle of now and working towards is this uh, concept of a single pane of glass. For an investor's entire, for an advisor's entire day, right? Right now, um, a lot of people are going, and they they've got four, five, six systems that they have to access during their day, and uh, you know that drainage a lot of login fatigue. You know, it, it's it's not an efficient process. Um, everything needs to drive and is driving towards one vendor or one experience uh, that. The advisor can wake up in the morning, come in, and do their entire workflow in the same sign-on, the same experience. Um, this is also important because a one of the big drivers of technology upgrades for advisors is getting more efficient, right? You know, the fees are coming in, so in order to you know, maintain or grow your revenue, you either have to go out and find richer clients, which is probably what you've been doing your whole career, or uh, be able to service more cl- clients uh, more efficiently gotcha
3: and, and what are the firms that are kind of leading that revolution that the ability to kind of integrate the aggregation the you know reporting analytics the whole ball of wax like is there anyone out there that's on the frontier of that you feel or uh
2: well i thought it was interesting that um there, there's a company called advisor engine that uh just uh, acquired uh, juncture which is a, a crm mm-hmm. um and they they kind of have a bunch of the whole pieces together they don't have the, the trading piece yet but um the you know, that whole thing is getting very close to a uh, a single pane of glass type of uh, solution.
4: Yeah, I would ju- I'd just add to that as well. Um, you ask about kind of what's the future for fintech and technology. I can't put my finger on a specific technology I'm really excited about, but to Kendrick's point, I think what really moves the needle is integrating stuff in a clever way, putting the data together and drawing the insights out. And I think that's the second piece is, there's so much more to do using things like predictive analytics that we've been talking about for five or ten years but actually getting it in an advisor's hands and having them structure their day based on a machine learning algorithm is something we're not not too many people are focusing on but I think that really could be game changing, could make folks far more productive.
3: What are your thoughts on some of the big tech firms where they already have these capabilities like an Amazon or Google where they're like well we could do that because we already built that, we're going to go crush all these overpaid finance people like did you ever see competitive threats or could you envision something like that happen in the future
4: well yeah harking back to my mckinsey days uh we actually did some work with a big asset manager where we kind of played out some of these threats and that was one of the ones the execs were most interested in was could google come in and eat our lunch here on the asset management side but then also on delivering solutions and technologies i think it it definitely could happen amazon may be the closest to doing that given their their the wealth of data they have and their, their closeness to the consumer, um, but it's definitely something firms should be thinking about.
0: I mean, you see that in China actually, like Alibaba, which is you know we all think of that's one of the major powerhouses. They offer money market mutual funds, and you know do they really they, that is the big, they're a big financial services company in addition to all the other stuff they do. Competing, you know, from a from a techs perspective, so it it you could you see the day where Amazon offers money market funds, and then from money market funds to equity funds, and it, it it wouldn't be a shocker to say that these guys would get into into different
3: games. Gotcha. I, I got uh, another follow-on question. Actually, we, we deal with some fintech folks as well. Uh, a friend of ours works for us at InGen, it's called. this guy named Jin Choi. And I'm a, I'm a fintech rookie, but I, I rely on fintech pros for my questions here. And And one of the ones he had that I actually have had experience with is one of the things that perplexes me even to this day is just how crappy the international fundamental data is on stocks around the globe hey, when is that going to be solved where someone can access that data that's somewhat clean efficiently accessed and reasonably affordable you know affordably accessed is that some of you guys are working on at fin mason or you know anyone who is uh well we're in th- that uh, the
2: data collection process is not in our roadmap uh so we rely on vendors we ingest data from uh, idc from reuters Uh, from the Federal Reserve Um, we we try to be we've built a data agnostic platform so that we can take in data from wherever it happens to be uh, to launch uh, there's there's some reasons why these fundamental data points are so inaccurate uh, overseas uh, I think I can say that on the radio. The, um, essentially, uh, it, there are a lot of reporting issues uh, overseas. We're talking about a lot of small issues sometimes, um, normalization problems uh, with, uh, with accounting. We try and scrub data as best we can. Uh, uh, we ingest uh, data on every single publicly traded asset in the world. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of uh, data validation code that we've built, that's actually, I would say, probably 70% of our code base is uh, the automatic uh, identification, diagnosis, and repair of uh, data errors and calculation errors. So uh, obviously, you can't automatically repair everything, but as that code base uh, grows and we apply a lot of uh, artificial intelligence into and, and trying to identify things that uh, are wrong or we think might be wrong, uh, and if we can't automatically identify and correct it, then we have to put it off to our manual
3: uh, data validation group so it's uh but, and, and do you cross-reference sources in as part of that process
2: uh we do yeah i mean well okay. so like uh on a price in, price ingestion we we always have two sources uh so uh you know we one day we want to add a third source and we think about it so that there's a tiebreaker but uh, for now we just do two uh and that seems to be working out pretty well because usually we can identify which one's not correct uh, especially if it's a big deviation, there's there is somebody West that I'm, I'll probably try to have on the show at some point. His uh,
0: firm, New Constructs, David Trainer is CEO. I've, I've talked with him a few times. Mm-hmm. They are trying to position themselves as the robo analyst, and they are sort of automating data collection on individual stocks. I, I know their U.S. database is is pretty robust. They have work to do on the international side, but you know I've been been pushing him in, in that direction. But he. He's an interesting... They have some interesting stuff at, at New Constructs. Let me just let me just reintroduce our guests here. We have uh, David Yates, Chief Information Officer at Wisdom Tree in the studio, Kendrick Wakeman, CEO of FinMason, Wes Gray uh, of Alpha Architect, and, and I'm Jeremy Schwartz here. Um, Dave, any, so we talked a little bit about technology, uh, how you're trying to provide some front-end user interfaces to visualize. I mean, like your, your specialty starting at the Bank of England was visualizing inflation and interest rates. You're trying to visualize Kendrick's analytics um how would what are the why is it becoming easier today for you to sort of create this technology stack what's sort of the an ecosystem within technology that's happening to make all these costs come down and, and and allow it to happen how are you building this stuff efficiently
4: yeah um so Kendrick touched on this because because of the way he set up his infrastructure in Kendrick's case uh, his apis are very efficient so apis are uh, essentially just ways of exchanging data via the internet um, and using Kendrick's APIs happens you know within a within a heartbeat uh, we're able to send a portfolio to finmason and get the result back whatever the analytics are within you know half a second less than that um, so what that means is you can do a whole bunch of stuff in the browser we're using the web obviously for delivering um, which previously you might have had to you know do on a server and take a bunch of time analyzing. Now you can have the user put in a portfolio, send it to Finmason for stress testing, for example, have it back in you know half a second. The user doesn't really even notice the lag um and then on the front end side the the number of web tools for building UI user interfaces and charts and graphs that are uh, that look great are responsive to the user, whether you're looking on on a mobile device or the web. Um, within the last five or six years that that technology has really become easy to use programmers have adopted it rapidly so you're able to find people that can work on it um, and as long as you have a good design um uh, kind of a good design experience and a good design uh partner to work with uh, they can really make it look good and simple to use so we use a lot of different types of visualization in the tools we have online from just the standard charts and and things for to the stress testing stuff that we we've been talking about um and we continue to try and add things that look cool but also add some value when you're, when you're reviewing them.
0: Wes, what are you you're, – you're trying to also do some stuff in this area, visualizing data. Like what are the areas you're trying to solve for? I know Alpha Architects is focused on this stuff as well. Maybe sort of tease out some of the stuff that you guys are doing.
3: Sure. So w- one of the – I guess not the downsides of, you know, hardcore analytics like what Kendrick's doing is it's complicated and hard, hard to know what's going on in the black box – Um, But as we all know, and as being a former professor, picture is a thousand words. So if we can somehow explain what factors are, what, you know, factor investing is in general with a picture, and you can just look at dots on a map and you can quickly identify, oh, that's a value fund. And I can just look at a picture. I don't need to look at regression output. Uh, We find that very effective for communicating to clients and people that are trying to learn about investing. So we just build tools that do that. Uh, just try to help consumers digest information in a much more efficient, reliable, trustworthy way where they actually understand it because not everyone's, you know, rocking a PhD or a McKinsey background uh, in financial services. Um, so so that's how we're using it. I, and I, I agree. I think that's a frontier. Not It's not really technology, quant, but just UI and, and helping other people understand all this geekdom that we all deal with it probably adds more value than, you know, making the next marginally more efficient, awesome machine learning algorithm. Because no one cares if they can't consume or understand what it's even doing for them.
0: And you've thought about the same stuff, Dave.
4: Yeah, I mean, we've been thinking about it, uh, working with with Kendrick on the stress testing, especially, I mean, to Kendrick's earlier point, um, it's really helpful for an advisor to be able to talk to the client about the maximum amount they could lose, as an example, in in a crisis or something. So showing them a comparison of a, an old portfolio to a new one that they've adjusted for that and showing that the downside risk just in terms of percentage return loss which they can understand or even in dollars um, is just far simpler than trying to explain some standard deviation and risk metric that's a bit complicated they'd never be able to explain that to a retail client Um, so we we show things in pretty simple charts stress tests on our website uh, one one portfolio versus another and we're also working on the ability to let uh, advisors do custom stress testing so they could for example very easily increase the price of oil by 10% and see what would happen to their portfolio in real time or decrease the price of gold or raise you know, interest rates on, on whatever um, we're pretty close to, to figuring out how to show that and I think it will be pretty exciting and easy to use and actually it uses factor math behind the scenes which could get complicated but when you put it in ways they can understand like increasing the interest rate what does that do in real time they don 't need to necessarily understand all the factor math, but it gives them the result they, they 're looking for, which is how does it affect the portfolio, and how do I tell that story to my client about what 's going on
0: No, you, you 've been a big um, proponent of doing all sorts of making our lives more efficient you know I think that 's what people think of technology is how do you make your lives more efficient and Dave has been one of my godsends in trying to help make my life more efficient uh, on a day to day basis um, what do you think Where do you think people go wrong? And just you know, trying to incorporate technology generally as sort of a technologist. How do you think people should be thinking about technology?
4: Yeah, so it's a good question. There's a, a couple of things. One is uh, just pretty simply technology doesn't solve everything. Uh, and I found that if you try and apply it without stepping back and saying, have I just got a broken process here in my business and you stick technology on it, that doesn't always work. Um sometimes it can speed it up, and you can remove the need for resources uh, associated, but it's not really solving the problem so a lot of my time as a consultant has been trying to work through processes, make them more efficient, and then apply technology to try and automate pieces of that. so I think that's the first thing um I think the other thing is uh ten fifteen years ago when you thought about implementing technology, it would there was a build or buy decision so do I buy technology, do I build it in house um And even when you bought it, you'd still have to customize it. So you'd need developers around and they'd be expensive and it's a pain to manage. Now, for me, really, the question, especially in the advisor community, is so many uh, software as a service platforms that you can just buy off the shelf and integrate with each other. Uh, It becomes a decision on how do you build a kind of best of breed single pane of glass and you don't need the expensive technology resources and decisions that you used to. It's more actually about staying on top of what's out there who's, innov- who's innovating uh, and who has the next kind of big thing that you need to stay with to kind of keep that advantage and that's difficult as well, right? Even someone who works in technology, it's tough to follow the trends, know what's what will be hot 6-12 months from now when you need to have implemented it. Um, so the, There's still challenges, they've just changed a bit from what we used to worry about I think.
0: Yeah, I think about trying to make a lot of these expensive tools that are very expensive, even for me as a buyer. I, I think there's an opportunity to make all this stuff free. And I know I'm a buyer of a lot of data and I'm a lot of buyer of tools. Um, and Kendrick is is partly working with Dave and trying to make some of this stuff free, um, well for, at least for, for people on our, our website um Kendrick who are the, the the people you think i don't know if you want to name specific firms or the types of
2: firms that you think you could bring help bring costs way down for people uh well asset management um comes to mind because there are, are several vendors in that space that uh, i think locked in their pricing you know a while's back when um computing power was relatively expensive and now that computing power is as cheap as water almost even cheaper actually in many cases uh you know they've held these price structures which don't really reflect i think uh, the economic value proposition as it exists today um and again i think there's also a uh, you know an impetus there because everybody needs to save money and uh, you know 7 years ago we wouldn't be in conversations with asset managers about replacing some of these systems um but now it's almost it's a conversation they have to have do, do you think these big banks or the
0: big firms um in particular will be able to get past uh building their own systems and go outside, or is it always going to be these big, big outside, they have to build their own stack, and they
2: can't write down big, big losses? I, um, I do think so. I, In fact, I know so. It's, it's happening. It's happening. They, uh, you know, it's, um, and again, I think it's, it's partially cost, partially, uh, you have to remember, it's very, very difficult to hire, uh, dev talent here in the United States. Uh, you know, that market is becoming quickly dysfunctional, um, so you know getting the resources are all the resources are pinched from two areas: one is from the budget it's being pinched, and two from the ability to get talent is being pinched i mean if you look in Boston at the uh you know the the help one they, you know the the uh, uh job postings it, it's just almost all it seems like it's almost all we want we want developers we want developers hmm. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We've got David
0: Yates, Chief Innovation Officer, CIO at Wisdom Tree, Kendrick Wakeman, CEO of Finn Mason, Wes Gray of Alpha Architect. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Wes, I looked like you were going to.
3: Yeah, Kendrick, actually, that, that's actually one of my questions I had was how do you acquire talent? And uh, we, we started a firm in house. We since spun it out. They went to China, a couple million dollars VC, but that affords them 20 engineers in the middle of nowhere, and they seem to produce really high quality work. And then my brother does a team of Ukrainians at like twenty bucks an hour. And so, so there seems to be like this huge demand and glut, or, or not glut, scarcity in the states. But then you always hear these anecdotes of people running teams very cheaply. H- how do you think about that trade off between quality, quantity, location, you know, confidence? I'm just curious how people in your business tackle this problem.
2: Well, I I can tell you how how we tackle it. I mean, basically, we looked at this problem because we were living this problem. I mean, if uh, you know, if you are, and it's it's not just the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, if if some kid out of college wants me to pay him one hundred and forty thousand dollars, and they're mediocre, you know, that's one thing. Um, it's you can't get the A grade talent. You know, you can get it at the CIA CIO level or the CTO level, but it's the, the line programmers. You cannot get an A grade line programmer. Not if you're FinMason, not if you're Fidelity, not if you're anybody, uh, unless you happen to be Google or Apple or Tesla or all these people. I mean, and Google, I think, is doing their employees' laundry for free now. I mean, it, it's it's a massive recruiting parts. machine. I mean, we're just a you know a, a, a financial uh, analytics company in Boston. I mean, we don't got a shot. So uh, there, there is the cost, but there's also the quality because developing is is. More of an art than people understand, I think in general, uh, you know an A grade developer produces something much much better than a B grade developer so it 's really important to get that a grade talent um, it 's easier to find that a grade talent overseas, so i think that 's one of the reasons why people uh, do a lot of outsourcing you know it 's not just cost it 's trying to get some people who are better um, but I think people there are two problems that people uh, encounter i think or mistakes maybe that they make is one they tend to um, split their dev teams between a U.S. component uh, and then just kind of outsource certain things overseas. Um, and developing is, is kind of a, a, you know, it's a team sport. It's, it'd be like trying to divide your rugby team. It, it, it doesn't, it's not as effective. Uh, and the second thing is they tend to hire consultants um, instead of employees. So you, the problem with the consultant model is you're usually hiring a lead consultant, and then they go out and hire consultants you've never even seen or don't even know who they are. So if you have a cohesive group of people who are employees or tethered to your organization um, and forms pretty much a good nucleus of a development unit, that's probably the right way to approach it.
0: And and Dave, you had a direct experience because you mentioned earlier that you were outsourced to India and you led a team in India.
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah. You didn't go into that experience. Well, we would joke about this, but um, even though I was from London doing a project for London, uh, knew my team in London, uh, the communication issues between india and and London were just terrible I mean I used to have sh- I used to have shouting matches with colleagues back in London just because we didn't understand each other about a particular thing that we were trying to build um, so i I sympathize with folks that have to go outsource because there are a number of issues that um, that you have to face communication probably being the hardest one cultural differences and the like but I agree that the talent is out there and if you can get that working model right uh, you can really go far I mean we used to Uh, do surveys at McKinsey about this specifically on sourcing and we'd always find that companies that hired their own employees uh, in an offshore centre like India or Eastern Europe or somewhere always perform better than if you outsourced it to an IBM or Accenture the best ones. On average Accenture or IBM would would probably do better but if you could really figure it out your team offshore was always far better than uh, uh, using a consultant. So yeah Kendrick I think has the right model and he's aware of some of those risks.
0: Do so you think, is it more expensive to build it yourself or is it more expensive to go... it, it's really, it seems So it sounds like it's better for you to build it yourself.
4: It, it's better if you do it right. If you find the yep. right leaders and you find the right team uh, and you, you align the cultures, you're going to get it right. If you don't do those things, it becomes difficult. Absolutely.
3: W- one other uh, question that I was finding interesting is, is obviously back to your point about delivering free software. Yeah. You know, nothing really is free and sometimes free is the most expensive thing, uh, cause typically get what you pay for, yeah, you get what you pay for. And a lot of times there's, there's data collection, you know, that's going to be used for other sources down the road. H- how do you guys think about like privacy on, on consumers data, you know, terms of service and all these things. And this is obviously a hot topic with Facebook, Google and the like, but in financial services, it, it should be as well. H- how do you manage that? Uh, well, we we
2: have an incredible luxury in this business and uh, in our business in FinMason because we actually insist that we don't consume any uh, client data whatsoever. All we want is an anonymous portfolio and what you want us to calculate on it, and that's that's what we return. In fact, if you enter into a contract with FinMason, we make you sign something that makes you promise you won't be sending over anything that's personally identifiable or sensitive information or anything to that effect. So for us, it's uh, it's uh, it's an easy
3: question for the industry as a
2: whole it's a huge issue
3: got it so your your cybersecurity manual is pretty pretty tiny i imagine <laughs> yeah, well, well no it's still incredibly thick okay because it's written by a lawyer <laughs> but yeah <laughs> i gotcha but, but i guess your guys cybersecurity policy is probably a lot bigger and how, how do you guys manage the privacy data architecture and all that kind of stuff
4: no so I, we're, we're very careful um with data that's provided to us by clients, so things like this tool, uh, we have a number of cybersecurity policies and procedures and, and and ways of managing the data architecture that ensure that risk is as minimal as possible. Um, but obviously, being an ETF firm in ourselves, uh, our funds themselves have lower risk than, say, other asset managers that would actually know a lot more about their customers than we do. Just the very nature of ETS being exchange traded means we can't tell you who owns a particular share of our funds at any one time, which is, from a cyber perspective, great news for me. Uh, it's less for me to worry about. Um, from a knowing your customers perspective, you know it's 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 more difficult for us, but that's it. There's kind of both sides of it.
0: Wes, how do you think about building more tools for, for your clients? You've got these por- portfolio visualizers that look at your factor exposure by looking at visualizing the individual stocks. Um, how do you think about development work? Like where, do you, where are the opportunities for, for people to think about?
3: Yeah, I mean, our, our firm mission is Empower Investors for Education, with the idea being is not everyone's a quant geek, but it's very hard to get through all the noise where there's so many funds and so many marketing people with tons of money and budgets, and everyone calls their fund a value fund. And depending on the right marketing person, if it's a good marketing person, X value fund might be better than the person that has a bad marketing person that owns Y value fund. And they sound the same, but they can be completely different. So the idea is let's disintermediate the salesperson and just go with radical transparency and visualizations and tools that help normal people understand what they're buying. Which So anything we can do or anything we can build to help the consumer basically make better direct decisions without an intermediated salesperson that is presumably going to manipulate them through marketing science and, you know, Jedi mind tricks. Uh, we just want to minimize that. Because we want people to make better decisions. Because uh, in general, we we believe our products and what we build at, at our firm are are amiable to those who kind of seek intellectual truth and you know want to go that route.
0: We got about fi- we're in our final two-minute countdown, Dave. Anything we haven't covered? Things that you're focused on, technology-wise, pro risks? Any, anything you want to touch on at the closing mm-hmm. part?
4: No, I mean, we're, we're very, I think Wisdom Tree is a firm and, and what we're doing digitally is really at the start of this journey. Uh, we're excited about building more tools or help uh, advisors not just understand our products but understand their portfolios better. Uh, mobile, although we're, we're late to this, is going to be a, a, a way for us to do this. Um, and we're excited about the partnerships we have with folks like Finmason Mason that could really accelerate for us uh, things that client ask, clients ask us about like attribution in their portfolios. That's hard to get with Fitmason, we can hopefully put that in their hands pretty quickly so there's a there's a bunch of opportunities we're going to be working on this year
0: and Kendrick any final closing thoughts people things you want to leave any final thoughts
2: sure uh, so you know the uh, financial technology uh space and and wealth tech in particular uh is got a lot of uh value propositions out there right now and it can be a little complicated and sometimes overwhelming if for example you're an advisor trying to think about what tools you should uh you should use um, but uh, it's, it's definitely an exercise worth giving a lot of thought to, and uh, I think if you really peel back the layers, um, you can get something that fits you perfectly. Kendrick and David, thanks for
0: coming down to Philadelphia to our Wharton studio. Not MIT, but good, decent school nonetheless. Well, is good. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer Daniel Bruno. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. West, thanks for coming in and co-hosting again. As always, it's always fun. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next week.